Aloha and welcome to the Hawaii Reopening Consortium webinar. This is the second of a series of seven webinars happening every Tuesday. My name is Sandine Arvez and I'm the Director of Sales and Marketing at the Ritz-Carlton Residences Waikiki Beach. I have worked in tourism for over 18 years and both my parents spent their careers in the tourism activity sector here on Oahu. And my name is Toby Tamai and I'm the president of a local agency called AT Marketing. I've been working in the tourism industry for 20 years. This series is a collaboration between the University of Hawaii Travel Industry Management International and the Shiler College of Business Alumni Associations. These webinars are offered at no cost by the two alumni associations. The webinars are designed to stimulate ideas for solutions that can be implemented by key tourism leaders, large and small business owners, employees working in the tourism industry, college students studying the travel industry or related fields, and the general public. Topics include tourism, health, and safety, an update from the airline and hotel industries, restarting businesses and retail and dining, and a special webinar focused on recovery of tourism from Japan. The goal of these seminars is to deliver information that can save small businesses, save jobs, and provide hope to our attendees with positive and forward-thinking messages. The idea for this series was born from a simple discussion that evolved into the realization of need. We needed to hear from our leaders in various industries. We needed them together, united, and we needed their help in determining our own plans to reopen successfully. Since these seminars are during the lunch hour, we are featuring UH Scheidler College of Business or travel industry management restaurants that are owned and managed by an alumni. Today's restaurant is LNL Barbecue, where you can find my absolute favorite comfort food, chicken katsu curry with katsu sauce on the side. So ono. <laughs> I would like to mention the producers behind this webinar today Evan Leong, CEO of Brain Gain Hawaii, and Buddy Leong, Executive Director of Virtual Student Experiences. Additionally, we will provide some fundraising opportunities in our subsequent webinars. Your contributions will go to the Shiler College of Business Alumni Association, which directs these funds to nonprofit organizations, student development and mentoring, and all networking opportunities to connect our talented business community. Next, I would like to introduce our moderator today. John Doyle is the Technical Director with the Department of Defense, U.S. Pacific Command. Joining him is Katharina Matayoshi, an associate for Sultan Ventures. Thank you so much, Toby and Sandy, for the warm introduction. Um, I think first uh, we should definitely uh, give a uh, big mahalo to our panelists, our esteemed panelists that have um, dedicated some time today to speak with us on a really uh, broad range of medical um, topics and, and technology and policy innovation. Um, and with that, I would like to to, to give a little bit of a caveat by saying that both Kate and I are really technologists and are not medical doctors, but that's why we've invited so many doctors to speak with us today. Um, but what we do bring to the table is a mindset for solving a wide range of hard problems through the use of technologies and, and innovation. Um, so we hope that uh, we all get something uh, useful out of this today. We wanted to have a discussion with a diverse panel of experts to learn how to strengthen the reopening plan via technology and policy innovation, because this is really not about reopening on day one. It's about staying open on day 100. As we know, stability and predictability are allies to businesses. 
sudden jolts to businesses such as hard lever shutdowns are extremely impactful to sustaining business operations. With that in mind, we organize the technology and policy solutions topic around three pillars. The first pillar is the accuracy levels of one-time testing. That includes the RT-PCR, antibody, and antigen tests. Pillar number two is centered around contact tracing technologies and policies to prevent super spreading and what I like to call outbreak suppression. To go along with that is proximity testing uh, to also reduce exposure. Pillar number three is the gap in one-time testing and outbreak suppression, and that's covered by continuous monitoring. And this is really an emerging field that we would like to uh, monitor closely. So this is both with hard and soft skin wearables. Think of like your Apple Watch, your Fitbit, the Aura Ring that the NBA uses, or the Whoop Band that the NHL and NFL uses, and the skin patch that um, some medical uh, professionals in a collaboration with the engineering department at Northwestern um, Med School on campus uh, developed. So we, we also wanted to hear from other industries that applied these technologies and policies to reopen, specifically uh, the NFL and some other smaller budget um, sports franchises that, <clears throat> that, that actually applied uh, these technologies in a package. And then of course, we wanted to hear from the military who doesn't really have a choice but to stay open and, and how they're keeping their people safe um, and allies safe as well. So as I stated prior, um, we the goal of this webinar is to actually generate um, some actual tangible solutions in order to strengthen our reopen strategy. So with that, um, I want to turn it over to Kate Matayoshi, who is from Sultan Ventures, as Toby said, and uh, she's going to introduce all of our esteemed panelists. Awesome, thank you, John. So it's my pleasure uh, to introduce our power panel today. Uh, first, I would like to introduce our keynote speaker, Lieutenant Governor, Dr. Josh Green. Dr. Green has been serving as a Lieutenant Governor of Hawaii since 2018, and at the moment, he's a part of the executive leadership team spearheading the state's pre-travel testing program. Thank you for joining us. Um, next up, our next speaker is Dr. Lee Buonconseo Lum, who is currently the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of Hawaii John A. Burr School of Medicine, where she has been a faculty member since 1997, training over 120 family physicians. Her scholarly activities have focused on reducing health disparities in Hawaii and the US affiliated Pacific Islands. Next up, we have Dr. Patrick Sullivan, who is the chairman and CEO of Oceanet Laboratories. Oceanet has brought to market many cutting edge technologies and products, including a new COVID-19 saliva test, which we'll talk about today. Um, also, I would like uh, to welcome uh, Kevin Vaccarello, founder and executive director of Sustain Hawaii. Kevin has been currently leading the research design and development of an Oahu-based COVID-19 response platform called Perseus. Um, and today we are looking forward to learn more about uh, how Perseus could help us reopen our local economy. Next up, we have Dr. Louis Tripoli join us today. Dr. Tripoli is a retired Rear Admiral for United States Navy and a former Command Surgeon as of last week for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. He's now working as an independent consultant to address significant public health and medical challenges, including health in the Pacific Islands, veterans health, emerging digital technology, and pandemic preparedness. 
Last but not least, we have Dr. Stuart Davis joining us all the way uh, from Florida. Dr. Davis is a medical doctor by training, but has been a full-time medical device entrepreneur for the last 17 years. He has found or held an executive position in 12 medical device companies. He's currently a managing director at Dresner Partners, a boutique investment banking firm with a large healthcare practice, as well as chief medical officer at the digital consulting services and solutions company, OS, which specializes in customer experience enabled by digital innovation. With OS, Dr. Davis recently consulted with the NFL how they can bring back the fans and players to the stadiums while keeping everybody safe. And also from John, uh, I've heard that he has a mean tennis back end, so I kind of feel pressured to uh, ask for a match as a former UH Vahine. So. So thank you uh, all panelists for joining us today. Uh, I don't want to delay our discussion any further. So uh, should we kick it off, John? Yeah, Kate, that's a great idea. So, you know, to warm us up, we have one question uh, that we would like to address to three of our panelist members uh, that have volunteered to answer this question. So the question is, how have you reconciled the balance between the need for public safety versus the need to restore a healthy economy. And so, um, Kevin, uh, do you wanna kick us off with that? Sure, thank you so much. Uh, and, and thank you so much for inviting me to the panel and, and participating in this with all you folks. It's, it's a real honor. Um, first and foremost, as a, as a nonprofit organization that's been building out our platform called Perseus, we never felt that there had to be any kind of compromises made. Uh, technology exists in order for lives to be saved and health and, and wellness to be at a, as a priority. And then livelihoods and reopening the economy safely with having the prioritization of lives being saved and healthy can exist, they can coexist. So we've actually built out a platform that really uh, readily allows for future proofing to engage multiple tests and, and things for that nature so that we can continuously be proactive and preventive without making any kind of compromises to life or the health of others as well as their their work and their, their livelihoods so um, we think they can work together if we're prudent about it and work together technology is not a problem politics and business might be thanks thanks Evan um Admiral do you have a, a response yes thank you very much um you know in the military as you've already said John we have a must-do mission there's, uh, there's not an option to, to shut down, although some things are more important than others. You know, our number one concern at, was at Indo-Pacific Command was the health of our uh, service members. And that was um, the paramount to us. But remember too, that in the military, we live with risk. We plan for risk, we understand risk. That's the nature of our job. Before this started, we actually had a plan a pandemic and emerging infectious disease plan. It's a plan that we exercised. And uh, we, so we had a playbook coming into this uh, where obviously we had um, some things right and some things that we had to learn. So we developed a concept, which I'm gonna talk about a little bit more later about balancing threat against those things that we had to mitigate the threat, what I called the four T's. And uh, understand that the threat varies in various situations, and I'll get into this a little bit later. But um, as you may, um, just to sort of center this, you know, obviously there are, it's not a one size fits all. 
there are different things that you have to do on a ship as opposed to a troop formation, an airplane, a submarine, or a building. And uh, we figured that out. One of the things that uh, I think it's important to know is that here in Hawaii, we have the Indo-Pacific Command Headquarters at Camp H.M. Smith. During this period of time, there were no significant outbreaks at Camp H.M. Smith, which is a must-do mission. We have to man that mission every day. And the way that we undertook that was by um, not widespread testing. We realized that no combination of testing and isolation would lead us to 100% solution. What we did was that we had the advantage of being able to uh, mandate certain behaviors. But we also made it important for people to understand that if they felt sick or if they were exposed, that they would come forward and say that, and there was no penalty for doing that. And I think that was an important part of our success. And as I said, we did not use widespread testing. One of the things we did learn though, is that um, if you really look at the data, two weeks of isolation is maybe not as good as a certain period of time plus a test. Because in an otherwise young group of people, such as uh, military people generally are, myself being the exception, but as, as in a group of people who are generally young and fit, the number of asymptomatic people is relatively high. So um, trying to wait a period of time to see whether someone gets sick is, uh, was not going to work for us. Um, but there's more to it than that. And I'll get to this at, at, my, uh, at my talk a little bit later. We learned that masks are very valuable in preventing spread or at least in attenuating the dose of the virus that gets spread. And I'm going to um, speak to that some later. So uh, um, again, you know, I think some of these lessons may be applic applicable to the civilian environment. However, some are not. And uh, I'll stop there and, and we'll move on to, uh, to the others. Thank you. Thank you, Admiral, uh, for, for that perspective. Um, and we look forward to hearing from all the panelists on all the topics uh, as well. Um, so we're going to move into the core part of our panel. And the first thing that we're going to talk about is the accuracies and inaccuracies of current testing technologies. And I understand uh, Dr. Blinkensejo Lum is, has some slides that she would like to present, and here they are. Aloha everyone, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity uh, to share a little bit. Uh, I'm a family physician uh, by training. Uh, and so my disclaimer is that I am not an epidemiologist. I'm not an infection control specialist, uh, but I do work uh, with, uh, you know, with, with many different populations um, and in the primary care setting. Um, and so I hope to just be able to convey some high level points today that'll help uh, maybe lay a framework and a background for the discussion. So just some key uh, testing terms. And I know this is a busy slide and it violates all PowerPoint rules. Um, but uh, you, you know what we're really, to, to reopen the economy, we really have to have a good surveillance uh, strategy. So surveillance is really the ongoing systematic collection and analysis of data so that we can evaluate what we're doing. Um, we do know that uh, there's several studies um, actually several large studies and reviews and modeling studies that do show that in, in, in places with low amount of disease in the population, 
um, the efficacy of the surveillance actually increases if you test more frequently. Screening is a term that we use to test for a disease in a population without symptoms. Uh, and so think of breast cancer screening in an average risk uh, female, right? Um, and, but the screening also depends a lot on how the test was developed and tested. And in this case, how it was developed and tested before the emergency use authorization approval was sought. Then diagnosis. Diagnosis is really identifying illness in people with symptoms. Uh, and so very important that if someone has symptoms, we have a really good test to tell, is it COVID or is it the flu or is it something else? Now the viral tests are the diagnostic, are also known as diagnostic tests, and there's two types. There's a molecular test, which really tests for genetic material from inside the virus, and it really allows for pretty early diagnosis. The challenge is that it's also um, detects it much longer than when uh, you actually have infectious virus. Then you have antigen tests, which test for proteins from the surface of the virus. Uh, those appear just a little bit later than. Uh, than, the, the molecular, than the molecular tests. And then the antibody tests that you uh, hear about, um, it's really just our, our immune system uh, showing that it's been fighting an infection, but it takes uh, several days um, to really get detectable levels. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's useful to look afterwards, you know, to look kind of behind us and to see um, what the virus was in, in throughout the population, but it really cannot do, um, do I have you know, the virus now. Uh, sensitivity, specificity, and positive predictive value are all uh, st statistical terms. Um, and basically, you know, the sensitivity is the ability of a test to correctly identify all patients with disease. I must say no test is 100% sensitive in the same way that no test is 100% specific. But the positive predictive value really it requires that we have an idea, a good idea, on what the uh, prevalence is in the population and how much circulating virus is around. And unfortunately in the United States, we don't have a really good um, idea of that because we really haven't had as much widespread testing as uh, you know, I think we had hoped. Uh, this is a picture way of, of showing some of this. And so on the left side of the screen is the virus, the viral load. So how much virus uh, do you have? And we're talking, you know, millions of copies or millions of, of, of virus. Um, and so some tests, the tests are all designed, again, to pick up either, you know, certain, certain portions of the virus. And you have um, that the basic concept is that, you know, it takes a while, right, for the viruses to get up to a high enough level before any test can detect it, whether it's an antigen test or um, a, you know, a, a molecular test. Uh, and, and we do know that on average, now lots of good studies done from around the world, that the incubation period is about six days, five to six days, meaning that from the time of exposure, it takes on average about five to six days before you start to develop symptoms. Now, there's been a lot of concern about asymptomatic carriers, and we certainly do have that. I think the best estimate is about 40% of the population. And so that poses a whole other challenge, but I think that's the idea of, of targeted testing that's more frequent, and maybe then you can actually pick up a few of those asymptomatic ones. But for many, most of the population that is going to develop symptoms, um, you know, they, the, again, the studies show that, it, you know, you're kind of beginning to be infectious two days before the onset of symptoms. Um, and then, you know, the virus then exponentially increases. Um, but with the different tests, you know, they all are actually better 
the longer you wait. And so all of the uh, rapid tests essentially were tested on people with symptoms. Uh, and, and they were really not tested, at least initially, or not tested on people who did not have symptoms. And so that has to be you know, taken in uh, into consideration into any kind of policy decisions. Um, the PCR test, which is the gold standard for diagnoses, um, it's, it, it's, it's such a good test at low levels, right? It's such that you see on the right side, it's actually even picking up um, you know, viral particles long after people are, are infectious. Um, but it does have, you know, the earlier you do it, when you have less virus, there's a higher chance it'll actually have false negative. And so that's not great either. Now there's different types of the SARS-CoV-2 tests. Again, SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. COVID is the disease, coronavirus disease 2019. Um, and so there's the three types of viruses, uh, of tests, uh, three big categories, as John had mentioned in the intro. Uh, the first is this molecular amplification. Uh, this is the viral, otherwise known as viral tests or the NAP tests, um, the RT-PCR, again, gold standard. Um, this is what was available um, initially, highly dependent on having a very complicated test, very expensive, you need a lab, uh, you need people, you need standard you know, reagents, and there was a time uh, in Hawaii that because of everything going on in the mainland or our time, our turnaround time was pretty bad, five to seven days because we had to send off island uh, and other things. Right now, our capacity for an on island PCR testing is pretty good. Um, and the turnaround time is generally one to two days, okay? Um, the tests are so accurate. These are the PCR tests, they're really quite accurate. So if you use for diagnosis, you don't need to, like you, you got it, again, if it's in the time frame then it, you know, you're very likely to, to actually have active infection. Um, it's not good for past infection, again, because the test can really pick up so many pieces of the virus long after uh, you know, you're actually infectious. So the challenge is that the RT-PCR test is really not good for surveillance and control um, because it's, uh, you know, again, a long turnaround time. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, again, it's expensive, it's not widely accessible to everyone. And, and so when you're thinking, again, the big picture, so not just testing as a strategy, but everything else, we need a more rapid test, right? And we need one that can be done more quickly. So then now there are some, uh, the Abbott ID Now uh, tests were the ones that were kind of initially deployed uh, to some of the nursing homes uh, initially. Uh, some of our, our two major health systems here use that, but it's always followed by uh, the RT-PCR because the rapid, um, the rapid Abbott tests um, are not as accurate as the PCR tests. But they show promise. Again, if you're looking, it depends on what you're testing for and what your strategy is. So with the antigen tests, these are also known as the rapid or the point of care tests. The Abbott Binax now is what is being uh, kind of shipped into Hawaii. I think this week, uh, nursing homes and other places are going to get it. Um, the BT Veritor uh, is another one. Sophia Quidel uh, was used by our nursing homes um, like last month. And then there's lateral flow antigen tests, which are a newer, quite promising, and you hear from uh, Dr. Sullivan uh, soon. Um, now these are rapid, 15 minutes, 45 minutes, right? Um, but again, they are. Um, they don't pick up as much. So their 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 threshold for detecting virus is not as 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 low. Um, but for the purpose of quick, easy, uh, relatively easy, are uh, much cheaper than the PCR. Say 
$5 a test versus $125 cash. Uh, you know, for a lot of reasons, these tests actually do have promise, but they sh they're better if you do it more often. So you can repeat the testing for daily for five days, or you can repeat a test a second time, perhaps, you know, day five to day six. The antibody tests, again, that had some wide um, press initially, but really hasn't, hasn't panned out. You know, the accuracy is really challenging. Um, but again, it has a purpose, and that's to determine actually how much, you know, what percent of the population actually had uh, COVID. The challenge, of course, with the antibodies that I'm sure everyone is well aware now is that, A, there's, you know, not everybody makes a great antibody response. And as far as we have the evidence so far, the antibody response may only last a few months. Um, and so, um, you know, that's, that's challenging from a testing point of view. Honestly, a little bit challenging from a vaccine point of view, but that's not the subject of today's talk. Okay, and so uh, so I'll stop there, and um, we'll hear from the other panels, and then I'll come back briefly to talk about contact tracing. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Winkensale Lum. Um, so I think as uh, Dr. Winkensale Lum mentioned, we heard that the rapid regular testing is still crucial to kind of manage and prevent the spread of COVID-19. And, uh, you know, Oceanet has been on the forefront of developing uh, a technology to help facilitate the rapid testing with Assure 19 tests, the affordable, non-invasive, and instant saliva tests. So, uh, Dr. Sullivan, can you please tell us a little bit about the technology behind the Assure 19 tests, as well as how it actually works? Thank you. Uh, anyway, it's an honor to be part of the panel. I'm hoping to help in this conversation of reopening Hawaii. Uh, it's a complicated problem, and this question of safety and economy is a, is a tough thing to titrate, but it's all ultimately about managing risk. So uh, a, a little background, Ocean has been around for over 30 years. We're a mind-to-market company. That means we think of things and drive it to market. And, and we start, this kind of outlines it, but from basic science fundamentals on the blue zone. So curiosity and discovery, and then we drive it to market uh, to get a product delivered. So products in the market are hard. The science for what we're doing is, is in my view, not only remarkable, it's magic, but the product is equally hard because you want it to work for anybody, anywhere, anytime. And you'll hear a little bit about that. Um, you can read about it in a book. It came out in August. I didn't plan on it for the uh, pandemic, but um, the process is repeatable and, and it's there and it's all homegrown. This is a Hawaii story. Um, the thing we're doing here for co this COVID-19 test really started with work in anthropoetic artificial intelligence about six years ago. This stuff always starts a little earlier than you would imagine. Uh, human style intelligence, dealing with ambiguity, small data, edge cases, that kind of thing. And what we do is match the risk appetite with a federal agency. And it was part of uh, Navy's defense research group that underwrote some of that risk. And then about three years ago, we took what we learned in this human style AI and applied it to uh, genomics. And this question of considering, like in this case, the human genome is 3 billion base pairs. So if you, if you look at base pairs, compared to an American alphabet of 26 letters, so um, 26 letters make words, words make sentences, sentences have meaning and have infinite complexity. So we thought, what if what we're really looking at is something that's written in a language we just can't read? And so we developed a tool set with DARPA 
we were really looking at cancer and causality, being able to understand what causes cancer from a mathematical standpoint. But it gave us a tool set we refer to as the grammar of RNA, which allows us to design something for purpose. And in collaboration with the University of Hawaii, because it's like we did it in silico, but then you print it and you test it, we created a single-stranded DNA molecule. So think of a 3D printer, but doing nucleotide molecules. So you have sequence and shape. And that became the test. And we call it a SURE-19. Operates kind of like a pregnancy test, except we're using saliva. Uh, this is kind of what uh, a single-stranded DNA molecule looks like. It's kind of a funny three-dimensional structure. Um, the thing in the middle is what we're actually tightly binding to. Uh, it's a part of a part of the virus. It's a nucleic acid protein. And the tests you see down below, the ones with the V are a live virus test in the BSL3 lab. Ones on the right are the, uh, the, uh, the controls. And it's actually been working quite well. Again, the support we had early on from ONR, Office of Naval Research and DARPA, and this great collaboration with University of Hawaii Medical School and Queens Hospital. Um, this kind of speaks to this question of a 10-minute test. So the idea is that you spit, you shake this thing a little, pour it in, and you get a, a, a line or not, and that gives you an answer. This graphic on the right, I'm going to go into that in just a minute and how that's working, but this the place for this kind of testing. So you just heard about PCR tests, which are terrific tools for diagnosing an illness and getting the appropriate therapy. But if you're managing infectiousness, it's the wrong tool. And the key reason is it's got to be something that you can use all the time everywhere and get quick answers and use those answers so that you're operating in a safe environment. Uh, this is kind of what looks like when you open the box. It's got a little thing you can stick under your tongue to collect saliva. We've got a, a various versions we've been using. Uh, it turns out these little things to collect saliva are uh, in short supply. We can buy them. Spitting is not, but you're trying to manage the spit to go in the cup and not get on everything else. Um, again, the work at Queens has been very good and the results have been excellent. Uh, we're in the process now of doing uh, cross-reactivity testing. And I've been on the call since God five this morning with an Italian group and then the National Institutes of Health um, and others. So what we have is very unique. One of the interesting problems is with the nasal swab, even the rapid nasal swab, do a nasal swab every day, your nose gets inflamed, but most people can spit on a regular daily basis, which brings us to this question of how to open the state of Hawaii and the strategy we've been working on called Bubbles and Bubbles. So you basically create a bubble on an airplane, everybody walking on tests, you create bubbles in schools, you create bubbles in businesses, and over time the bubbles grow until you create one big bubble for the state of Hawaii. Um, we kind of laid out how that might work, but it's basically you test every day for five days. So when you walk off an airplane, you test, you test every day for five days, you can test in restaurants. So the idea is to create a bubble for the state of Hawaii. This is an interesting graphic based on a simulation from, uh, you saw the reference to uh, Lee's earlier presentation. Um, uh, Mike Mina from Harvard, Larry Moore from Boulder and White Parker have done some great job modeling like groups of 5,000, 100,000 people. But basically, plus or minus a day, the, after you're initially exposed, you peak at five days. 
So the idea is that early on, there is no test to say if you got it, if it's really low. And it's a, it's a big question of between your immune system fighting back and the, and the virus winning. And eventually for a lot of people, the virus takes hold. But if you got just a little bit, some shreds of virus, you're not gonna get it. So you need enough to get sick. Um, this shows you how repeated testing based on those models and simulations crushes infectiousness in a community. So to manage a contagion in a community, you're managing infectiousness. That's the, your you unwittingly infecting family, friends, and coworkers, which is really the problem with the spread. Um, this graph is a little easier to read, but it kind of shows it peaking around five days. The pink zone is where you're at risk of infecting others. That is the zone where you need to be checking to make sure that if you're in that zone, you're offline. If you're in the green zone on the right, you're post-infectious, even though the PCR test may show you've got it, but you just don't got it in a way to infect others. And on the left side, what you've got is pre-infectious. So you're not infecting everybody, you're just getting started. So what you wanna do with this kind of a test is get just below that interface of the lines, which, which we are actually. Uh, so again, the results have been very good, but trying to make our test accessible to anybody anywhere eight-year-olds to 80-year-olds, that is the thing we're working on, that and cross-reactivity testing. So hoping to get this application in in the next couple of weeks. We're just really close, but it's been a grind. So what we've done is we've taken, um, uh, two, so I had a plan in October last year of digital medicine, which had antivirals, cancer therapies, and all kinds of things. This is, again, how we do this at Ocean. You can read about it. But um, we did two years of work in two months, the team did. And uh, the team is very interdisciplinary. So Ocean, it has a few hundred people, maybe 100 PhD level scientists and engineers, kind of like a little mini university group. But the people that did this included virology to astrophysics. And we had to kind of create things from scratch and then collaborate with the university to produce things and test things. That's how we got this far. And again, it's very promising. So covered a lot very quickly, but... Uh, I'm happy to answer questions when uh, when we're ready. Awesome, Dr. Sullivan. I think one follow-up question that I have for you. So I know the you know the technology truly really seems to be a game changer for Hawaii, and it has uh, came a long way. Um, and I know that you have already started like the human trials in conjunction with the Queens Medical Center to gather the data for the FDA. So when do you think we can expect the test to enter the market and start actually being used by the general public? And where will we be able to see the test first? Well, uh, good questions. We're trying to get the application in in a few weeks and trying to close the gap on cross-reactivity testing, which we need to test it against a bunch of other viruses. And you don't have a bunch of them lying around. So, and the problem is, it's hard to get your hands on them. I and the infrastructure in Hawaii is kind of thin. So because we're part of this NIH team, they told us that we'll get special treatment. So we literally are using the federal government and NIH, the RADx team, to throw their weight around to get at the top of the stack because we need access to some of these things. There's just short supply. Once it goes in, now we've already filed for the pre-EUA uh, with FDA. They're telling us, again, because we're part of RADx, so RADx thing is kind of like the healthcare shark tank uh, in, in salute to our president's uh, showbiz flair. And basically, 
we ended up in this thing where a few thousand applicants and a down select and another down select and another down select. So we are a, uh, a very important part of that team because I think we're the only ones really doing saliva and we're the only ones who created a synthetic molecule for a test. Everybody else is using a, an antibody test. The Abbott test, for example, is an antibody test, which is which may be fine, but there's only going to be so many, and there's not nearly enough to service what the country needs. Uh, there's a Harvard study a few years back that says you need between five to 20 million tests a day just to open up. For Hawaii, however, the plan was to to produce 25,000 tests a day here, 750,000 tests a month, and to create uh, the basis of manufacturing and, and maybe a new industry. To start that up takes time to order equipment. And look, everybody is trying to do their best. I've talked to the governor and the lieutenant governor and everybody. They want to wait until we get approval, and, and that's perfectly fine. We will work with everybody. So what we're doing, though, is we're bringing the, the, from the deep science to the product. And, and the call today with this European group is, is national, is actually global distribution. So we're trying to go to scale to be able to produce on a massive scale. And, um, you know, that's, that's where it's at. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks. Yeah, so, so next, um, I think we have the Lieutenant Governor, Josh Green, on. Um, Lieutenant Governor, if you could uh, do, deliver the keynote address to go over uh, overview of our reopening technology and policies. Okay. So uh, if you don't mind bringing up my slides, that would be great. It would be helpful if you've got them there. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a real quick overview of where we are, where we are on travel, what we're doing with labs and so on at, and tests. But uh, just so appreciate being able to um, follow Dr. Sullivan. It's terrific uh, because we need that kind of technology or his technology even uh, to really be full go. So uh, 83 cases today, 52 yesterday. We've had Hawaii's experience has been significant that we had 13,000 cases so far, just about. Uh, our numbers have been improving because of some decent policy calls on the part of the governor and the mayors and decreasing cases overall. But we are obviously suffering very significantly with our economy closed, with schools closed, or at least closed for in-person education. So big challenges. We also as we surged through the summer, August, September, it became very dangerous. We got up to 318 individuals with COVID in the hospital and that was pressing on our limits. We're now at 110 individuals in the hospital, much, much better. This is our best we've been in now six weeks. We have suffered 160 fatalities. About 20% of those have come in nursing facilities, particularly the VA. So we're very aware of where our risk is, what we, can do when we're doing well. We had no cases in May. And then of course we did uh, terribly in August, September. So we now have to do well again and let's push right through this. So uh, here we are. Um, next slide, if you don't mind, or scroll down just a little bit there. We're going to begin travel back into Hawaii. Right now we're between 17 and 21% unemployment. There's over 11% of people now have fallen behind on their rent. We have housing instability, we have food instability, and all of that has consequence, as we know. We also have the ability to control COVID when we do well, uh, but hopefully not with lockdown. That's the ultimate uh, need that we have. We cannot stay locked down forever. And I'm not sure we can depend on vaccination and immunity 
to save us either. It could take some time. We'll talk about that. Now, starting October 15th, because there's so much to share, I'll bolt through this. We will allow people to come from the mainland, also internationally. We'll allow them to come and not have to quarantine, provided that they have uh, taken within 72 hours of their departure a nucleic acid amplification test from a certified CLIA lab from one of our partners. And I'll talk about our partners. Over time, what we'd like to do is we'd like to have more novel approaches where it's easier, it's less expensive, and it's more reliable. All of the things that uh, uh, Pat talked about. People will have to get their test no earlier than 72 hours before the departure again. Passengers under age five will be exempt because they're attached at the hip to their parents. And people will have to have that negative test to avoid the 14-day quarantine. Let's go down a little bit further so people can see that's the shape of it. We, uh, we are talking about things that are all hopefully embedded in our hawaiicovid19.com website. We'll constantly update that with frequently asked questions, but the goal is to get open statewide, although there are some questions and some of the mayors are, are concerned about opening. They have less healthcare capacity on Big Island, on Kauai, so they're, they're concerned. But I do think we can open safely and have to open. So our partners, and that's the next slide, some of them right now, although three have been added in the last hour, and I will kind of run through everybody who's now a partner. CVS, people can go to CVS and get a test. It's going to be mostly the Abbott Now, uh, the Abbott ID Now, which is a nucleic acid amplification test, a molecular test, and rapid. We also know Walgreens will do the same. Kaiser will actually cover the cost of Kaiser members who are traveling. Quest Diagnostics uh, is working both in in-person swab at Walmarts across the country. And then they also will have a mail-in uh, component of the program for us. They're a very big lab. Vault, Vault Health is a mail-in swab where you do an anterior nasal swab and you again mail it in. It's observed, the tests have to be observed. Finally, AFC, it's a bunch of urgent care facilities in Oregon where we had a PUCA in our, in our testing capacity. So you can go to Minute Clinics and if you, you see the next slide, um, it's a way to get tested. This is CVS. Now, obviously, since I have the luxury of following my friend, um, Pat, the, uh, the, the challenge here, of course, is, is that these are all labs. They take time. They can be quite expensive. The test is very reliable, as Lee pointed out, uh, which made the governor feel good about it. But in time, I think we have to be less uptight and more strategic about these things. I'm not saying the governor's uptight. I mean to say he's an engineer. He wants to be safe, which is the right thing. But I think that we all want to be safe. We all want to engineer this problem, but it's going to have to become a little bit more accessible as time goes by. And that probably will coincide with our ability to get some immunity. A vaccination will come. So there's a, an example of CVS. Let's, let's pop down to the next one, if you don't mind. Airlines are also going to be our partners. Hawaiian Airlines, United, Alaska, American, all are going to have testing at their airport, uh, near their uh, kiosks, near their desks, or at the actual major airports uh, in a separate lounge. And this will be San Francisco, LAX, Chicago, SeaTac, uh, Oakland. We're gonna have multiple options for people to get tested. But once again, wouldn't it be great if Hawaiian Airlines sent an email out and said, would you like um, the Assure 19 test for your family of four? The cost is, uh, $20 per se, and bam, they get it, and they begin to test, and we have a mechanism to get the results beforehand. So we're going to move that direction, but for now, we're doing nucleic acid amplification tests, and we're going to obviously move 
uh, forward weekly. Our committee meets every day right now to get open, but we'll meet constantly to make sure that we can get there because COVID is here for a while. Next slide. This is just something I, I thought you guys might uh, like to see. This is a business community gathering and we do have projections already. And with the announcement of October 15th, which we really need to hit, we can't pull back again. The, the confidence level will fall through the floor if we miss that deadline. So we are gonna open. In fact, we'll be beta testing it in the three of the days before. Uh, it's coming very fast. Today is what, the sixth. But we, we see what our numbers look like. We will probably be able to reach about 19% occupancy uh, in October, 32% November, 40.6 December, and we will get over 50% by spring, uh, by mid-spring. So it's quite something as long as we can uh, continue to progress and given the rate at which testing and technology is progressing, and frankly, as people continue to get smarter about wearing masks, we'll do well. Uh, the challenge, of course, that we have is right now our neighbor islands are worried about opening up because they they don't feel, know that they feel confident enough with one test. And it's not perfect, granted, it's not perfect. I'm the first to admit that, but the prevalence is low enough. The prevalence nationally is more like 0.2 to 0.3%. So that's like one in 500 to one in 350 individuals being positive. Then you add a test that's very reliable and you can be pretty well assured. You don't have a lot of people coming in, but when our own people are intermingling and taking care of tourists, I don't know what you mean by forgive me, uh, when they're taking care of travelers, it will be very good to have easy inexpensive testing so that we know to stay home if we have COVID or early days of COVID or uh, test our children if they're gonna go to school and so on. Uh, next slide. These are the reasons to do it, the pre-testing uh, program, the pre-arrival COVID test program. Uh, extra layer of security and safety, decreasing the number of travelers with COVID from entering the state. I believe it'll be about one in a thousand instead of one in 200 if you didn't do a test at all. And that makes a difference, especially if you have uh, some of the counties being very wary about having any cases. It's not uh, feasible to have no virus spread when you have a global pandemic, but everyone's working hard. It lets us uh, reconnect our community to travelers to bring tourism back. Tourism represents 46% of the economy on Maui. It represents 12 to 13% of the economy on Oahu, but it's a big economy. And we wanna also protect our frontline workers in tourism, our locals who are coming home, which are probably the greatest uh, individuals of concern because they'll be in the mix with us, of course, when we come back from our trips and whatnot, how do we make sure that we can have extra safety and not spread it to our families? Finally, we wanna restore some of the economic activity uh, and livelihood uh, of our people. We're in big trouble economically. Uh, next slide. We're gonna beta test the program. We're planning on doing it the uh, 11th, 12th, and 13th of October. Hawaiian Airlines has three flights that fly in from the West Coast each of those days. And we'll do that partnership to make sure our program works. We're working, the tech is being worked by uh, Doug Murdoch. We also have additional partners to check the validity of the tests. We've talked to a couple companies. One of them is uh, Immunify, another is Data Warehouse. We just need to make sure that our AI can read the tests and make sure that we don't have a lot of tests come from a lot of places. Uh, next slide, please. Strategic surveillance. So because there's been some concern about not having a second test, and I, I can quickly tell you why a second test is not particularly feasible with the current testing capacity that we have. Right now we have about 4,000 tests we can run a day. 
if we have 8,000 visitors coming in a day, that would mean on the fourth day, in order to have an adequate uh, space, you'd have to run a, a test on all 8,000 visitors. If you try to keep them in quarantine for those four days, for an average vacation stay of six to eight days, no one will come. And it defeats the purpose of opening up at all. So that's a non-starter and people need to understand that. That's why I'm so glad to see Pat say that you'd stay open, but you just test really frequently. Now, a second test though would, like I say, exceed our capacity by 100% right now. So instead what I proposed is a strategic surveillance program where we, we test, we reach out to 10% of all the arrivals, which will be 700 to 800 tests a day. We cover it, cover the cost. And we have priority focusing on returning locals because they're going to be more willing to get tested, honestly. We'll skew our, our data a little bit, but they'll be more willing to test because if you test an individual and they happen to be positive, then they know they can do their isolation or quarantine at home. But if you instead test uh, visitors and they find out they're positive, they're in a bad situation. The plan is to do this as an investigation so that we simply find out what our uh, prevalence is, our point prevalence is on that fourth day. And we will do it as a 60 day pilot, again, free to participants and we surveil uh, with the testing on all islands. It's likely we'll do this with a, um, a, you know, a NAT test again, nucleic acid amplification test. But if there's a better way or a, dish, a different test people would prefer, that's fine too. I don't mind if we, we now venture out, of course, into antigen testing or what have you, as long as the sensitivity and the specificity is good. This might be another good way uh, to incorporate some technology from our local company. The next slide, please. I think we're getting to the end here. Uh, if there are more tests, of course we should use them. And I, you know, I think there was a, mis a misunderstanding that I don't want a second test. Of course I want a second test or even a third test, but we want it for people who are here. We want it for our individuals if they are gonna be working at nursing homes or their first responders, or they're taking care of Kupuna, or their teachers and students where we could have outbreaks, or our vulnerable communities, Pacific Islander communities, homeless individuals, prisons. These are the people that if we do have an extra eight or 10,000 tests, which we are pursuing, that we probably should be using those tests on. We should probably use them there strategically rather than just taking one of my relatives who's gonna be a 72 year old New Yorker coming in, they've just had a negative test, within 72 hours, and then we test them again. I don't know why we're so concerned about protecting against that scenario when really most of the spread has been community spread. And that's why I focus this way. Fully debatable, I know, it's a scary time. I know that too, I had COVID. I just got over COVID two weeks ago. And it, you know, it was a worry because I worried about spreading to my wife and my children and my chief of staff who is awesome and I, everybody, I didn't wanna spread it to them, but, you can catch COVID quite easily. I caught it in a car while wearing a mask on my way to the hospital driving. So I know that because I had been tested uh, frequently and just three days before, uh, I'm sorry, five days before that. So you get the idea. Uh, I think maybe one or two more slides. That might even bring us to the end. Uh, just here's the last, a couple last things I wanna point out. Honestly, I can't wait to have really great capacity to test at all times, but if we want to really stop COVID, uh, we should recognize that testing is not prevention. Testing can be a part of it with good contact tracing, but real prevention is social distancing and mask wearing. Hawaii Island, 57%, Kauai, 68%, Maui, 70%, Oahu, 84%. None of these numbers are enough to snuff out COVID. Uh, Oahu's doing pretty well, but there's so many people here, it's a challenge. 
Hawaii Island, if it wasn't sparsely populated, would be completely overwhelmed by COVID right now, given that, that mask rate. And that's a big concern. So we need to really convince people while we're testing them to also wear masks. There might be a slide left there. I'm not sure. I think that's it. Okay. Um, so anyway, I wanted to uh, thank you for including me and I'll be here for questions with the other panelists. Uh, but that is part of the process that we're looking at. And I really think that we do have an obligation to get our state opened on some level. And I know we're all very attentive to that. We're surviving, but just barely. A lot of people are really struggling, especially the working class and people in the service industry. So I want to get us open safely. Thank you, Governor Green. Um, from our webinar one last week, we had one question, um, and really it's, it's, it's two questions, but four people asked them, and this is Shi Ying, Will, Dr. Chong Hansen, and Dara O'Carroll. And um, it, it relates to your um, presentation that you just gave. So the questions are, and they're related, what inferences are we using to derive the prevalence rate for incoming visitors and arrivals? I think you had said previously at one out of 1,000 or 0.01%. And then to follow on to that, residents are concerned with safely reopening. How are we addressing the positive cases that may slip through the net from a single 72-hour COVID-19 test, as you talked about, as determined by the, by the prevalence rate assumption? Sure, let me pull up a, uh, a, a piece of data. So I have the top 10, the prevalence rates of the top 10 parts of the country. I'll have to read this slide. So uh, people have been suggesting the prevalence rate is 2% for the travelers to Hawaii. It's just wrong, just so people know, that's not correct. Um, the prevalence rates are uh, Washington state, 0.7%. This is before you do a test at all. Uh, Texas, 0.4%. This is from their departments of health and CDC. Oregon, 0.2%. Arizona was 2.8%. Uh, Colorado, 0.8%. New York, 0.3%. Illinois, 0.7%. Utah, 0.7%. Florida, 1.8%. Uh, and then when you are able to apply a test, which is a standard, the gold standard test, you can reduce the risk by between 50 and 80%. And the expectation that people are going to get sick in those three days between or two days between getting a test and coming to Hawaii is really um, a strange uh, approach in negativity because they have not caught COVID already for the last three, four months. So why we would assume that they suddenly are at higher risk is beyond me. But um, when you add that test, you can lower the global prevalence rate for the, uh, the top 10 states. I also have California, which we now have numbers from LA, their LA numbers are 0.22% was the last numbers. They just tested 35,000 individuals and that was the prevalence rate. So when we can drop, drop these numbers from those prevalence rates and then with an additional test, we can get down somewhere between 0.19% and 0.46% of people that would travel to Hawaii that will remind you will be asymptomatic and therefore less of a concern, but not, not a concern of course, and at 0.19%, you're talking about one out of 500 individuals. Uh, so it's just important to look at what the actual numbers are so that when we have six or 7,000 individuals coming, we don't have that many individuals. That could be say 12 to 14 people that are positive. And again, if, if they've quote, slipped through the cracks, we're here waiting with checking their temperature, checking their history, awaiting actual symptoms, and then we will 
hopefully provide them quality health care with our tests again. All of this is very relevant. If you recommend a test after four days of quarantine again, and you're trying to chase this number of 12 to 14 people, and you're going to keep your economy closed for those 12 to 14 people, and I know people will dispute these prevalence rates, but I get them from leadership in this, you know, in the nation's health uh, circles, then what you're doing is you're saying that we are going to stay closed because no one will come and stay in quarantine if that's the case. First, they pay $130 a test for a family of four, and then you're going to ask them to do the same again. Even if you give them a free test the second time, you're still making them stay in quarantine for at least four days, and then you might gonna have to wait for the test results. So you better darn well have a rapid test for all 8,000 people, which we don't have. So that kind of alarmism is not gonna work. And unfortunately, people conflate my statements with trying to take a risk. I'm not taking a risk. People are harming themselves. 40,000 people have lost their health insurance. We have to open up. And so when this debate occurs, I need to be very direct with people that the actual numbers do matter. Uh, in a presentation to me made by some people who have been naysayers, they also suggested that we were going to be at 30% hospitalization rate with people who are positive. It's just wrong. And so it was the same presentation. And unfortunately, we have to use the actual numbers. So we need to get open. If we want to add additional testing, we should do it in a smart way. Smart testing would be testing our people who are interfacing with large numbers of people. If you have 8,000 extra tests, test first responders, test teachers, test individuals that work at nursing homes, because you're better off chopping down the number of active cases than you are chasing a smaller number, a much smaller number of travelers. Plus, setting the standard with a firewall between us and them is a very, very unhealthy way to approach society. And unfortunately, that is the, that's the line that's often been drawn. It's being drawn right now between the big island and travel. So we have to be much more careful about that. Uh, I'll continue to have this discussion with people. I also have, like I said, recommended that second test to check our assumptions. If our assumptions are wrong, I'll admit it, and we will then readjust our testing criteria. But that's the, that's the purpose uh, for recommending that second test, which, like I said, was called um, strategic surveillance. Thanks so much for, for that candid response, Governor. Um, and we, we completely realize that these are, um, you know, uh, solutions and decisions that don't have perfect outcomes. There, there are trade-offs. Um, yeah. With that, I'll turn it over to Kate um, for our next uh, section. All right, awesome, thank you. So uh, next up, I would like to ask, or specifically ask Dr. Stuart Davis, you know, since we're talking today about solutions and technology, I wanted to have another sneak peek into, into the future, right? So recently there has been a buzz about continuous monitoring and some wearable technologies that were used by major sports leagues, which are, uh, able to provide or I said able to provide a pre-COVID detection based on certain physiological metrics. So I kind of wanted to get your take as a you know seasoned veteran and health tech. Um, what are the most promising technologies that you've seen on the market and as well as how far in the development do you think they are in order to be able to detect the COVID-19? Sure. Hopefully everybody can hear me as well. And I also just want to thank uh, the, the governor. I, I've been on a lot of these calls with a lot of uh, other state governments, Nevada, Florida, and whatnot with other governors and things like that. He did an incredible job actually of articulating some of the plans and some of the testing and some of the statistics. So I just want to applaud that. Um, 
in terms of the wearables and some of the discussion that that's out there, you know, there's been a lot of press around um, the Aura Ring as well as the Whoop Band. I think they, you know, these companies, because of their marketing, they really tried to get information out there very quickly and try to say that they had solutions. Um, there's a handful of other ones, but I just want to be very clear that these were designed and developed as fitness trackers, especially the Whoop Band. And the Aura, the Aura Ring was developed also as a fitness tracker, but also for sleep tracking. And, um, you know, because the Whoop Band has been so popular with professional athletes, especially uh, PGA Tour players, the Aura Ring has been so popular with professional athletes as well, like the NBA, and they've partnered with them. I think people real think that, you know, that these are some magical solutions. And I just want to say that some of the marketing that's been out there to say that they can, um, you know, track COVID symptoms prior to people being symptomatic and things like that. I think a lot of that stuff is false. I do believe that there's hope for some of these types of hard wearables like the two I'm speaking of and potentially others. But I don't truly believe that we're anywhere close yet. You know, these are my opinions, of course, but I have been following these technologies very closely. I just think we're still a ways away from using these, you know, for, for COVID tracking. You know, that, that's my opinion, at least specific to these hard wearables. I think that, you know, there are, there are thoughts of things that could work also together with the Apple Watch. Um, and, and also use these types of trackers. But again, you know, these are fitness trackers and they're tracking movement, different stuff like that. They're not ideally set up for some of the, you know, for some of these uses. That doesn't mean that we can't have some new things in development. That doesn't mean that jumping on technology like, like uh, you know, simple battery operated, uh, cheap pulse oximeter technology that exists all over Amazon. You know, these are other modalities that I think are gonna, you know, are gonna help some of these companies be able to do, you know, have some hard wearables that, that can track and, and help patients, but I just don't think we're there yet. So just wanted, that's about all I'll say about hard wearables. No, awesome. Thank you for covering that and kind of bringing caution into the, the buzz that has been around these technologies too. Yeah, th thanks Kate and thanks Stu. Um, next, we'll turn it over to uh, Kevin to talk about his um, platform that could uh, potentially uh, be helpful in, in this re re reopening kind of integration. Great, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, so I'm, as mentioned, my name is Kevin Vaccarello with Sustain Hawaii. <clears throat> We're a native Hawaiian nonprofit that's been around since 2003. And um, we've been focusing on health and wellness issues for um, the most vulnerable population bases. We happen to be a high tech um, group that's got over 40 developers on our team from several PhDs and folks from different uh, Ivy Leagues like Caltech and MIT, Harvard, um, Princeton and Yale. And um, we've been working and using our skill sets in order to help push forth on some solutions. We kind of evolved from doing work from the Department of Agriculture to a Healthies platform, which is what allowed us to pivot when COVID hit to build a very comprehensive solution set. A lot of folks have been speaking about uh, contact tracing specifically. Uh, we do have that as a component, but we're a much more robust solution that actually does the entire continuum. So our platform is called Perseus. Uh, Perseus is an acronym for Planned Emergency Response System Engaging Unified Support. Our number one um, criteria is to save lives, number two, livelihoods, and number three, reduce liabilities. And um, from our vantage point as a community-based um, nonprofit, there's no price that can be put onto anybody's health or life. So um, that's first and foremost to us by, by no extent of um, imagination. And then as far as the improving livelihoods goes, because of our 
primary community base, being in the tourism industry in particular, it is a very, very, very big challenge and strain to be paycheck to paycheck and not being able to know whether you're going to pay for food or, or housing or other basic needs. So that's critical. In order to reduce liabilities, which is primarily upon the employers, as well as the um, government and as well as educational institutions as examples, if we can go after saving the lives and improving livelihoods, um, we're in really good shape for reducing those liabilities. Now, what we've done is we've taken that really simplistic framework from a from a kind of a, a nested hierarchy vantage point and said, we have to go from testing to tracing, to treating, to exposure notification, quarantine management. So there's this continuum of solution sets that are required. When we were building the solutions, we also knew that we wanted to ensure kind of a, a future proofing. So we've built this very agnostically. We know that there's constantly gonna be innovation that occurs from an FDA and EUA approved test vantage point. Um, I was really happy to hear Dr. Sullivan's uh, presentation. That's a, it gave me the, the nerd fix that I always strive to get on a daily basis. So thank you, Dr. Sullivan. Really amazing work you folks are doing. Um, so groups like Oceanit who are providing solutions, others that are coming up with new antigen tests, rapid point of care tests. As those come up, we're keeping our finger on the pulse of what those solution sets are. How do we integrate them? How do we look at what the level of um, price points are, the speed of the results, the accuracy of those results from a sensitivity, specificity, and LOD vantage point. If we hit those sweet spots, we can get those in. Um, it'd be really interesting to see where we're at presently, and perhaps groups like Premier Medical Group, um, uh, the Project Vision Hawaii, Minute Medical, and the various labs and clinics can identify the total amount of capacity. And if everybody can say these are the amounts of total tests we're able to bring in, maybe we're getting closer to 8,000. I'd be curious to see that. Um, so that'd be one question that I put out to the community of testers, whom, by the way, we actually already have partnerships with. So we're kind of doing this integration of our platform so that as soon as the test results come in, agnostically by any test, each of these test providers are able to use the platform in order for those test results to be immediately put into the platform. Then individuals notified if they're either um, positive or negative, and then they can either um, self-isolate or quarantine if positive, and then it triggers a, a kind of a, a stop clock for 14 days down and moves from there. And negative, then you know we can preferably get back to normal um, types of activities, still being um, observing safe protocol. So the voluntary and anonymous tracing then gets combined with the testing because if we actually are tracking voluntarily and have the data only on our particular smartphone devices, that enables the information to very safely and privately um, and securely be stored on the individual's phone. We don't even have access to that data from a software developer vantage point. And even the end user doesn't have data access for their locations. Um, until they actually test COVID positive, at which time they're asked if they're willing to share that information anonymously. And when they do potentially share that data anonymously, it then provides these exposure notifications to everybody else by matching the, the date and timestamps, the, um, the location and the duration of that exposure. And with that, we can identify the threshold of risk that's based upon various epidemiological data um, we do also have a kind of a, a proactive treating component. So we have syndromic surveillance built into it. 
Um, that's a really key feature. And I'm gonna just switch, switch the uh, slide really quickly because I think that's a kind of an important thing. Um, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there in the market and it's become problematic from a, a reopening strategy. And we've actually had to kind of battle a lot of the misinformation. So we ended up putting together this comparative analysis just to show a little bit more objectively and rigorously what the solution sets are that we're aware of in the market currently in Hawaii, and then what solutions we actually feel are important for a fully comprehensive safe reopening protocol. So you can see on the left side there, all the different main features. And then you can see up top on the right, uh, uh, in the columns, the various uh, solution sets. Now, if you look at the features, there's a whole testing component. We've got five different um, sub features. There's tracing component that's pretty extensive. There's a treating component that exists. There's prevention. There's quarantine um, aspects that exist from a quarantine management side. And then there's the whole privacy and security end. So even though all the data is securely held on a person's device, um, we do still went through the process of having a HIPAA compliant server on Amazon Web Cloud Services that's SOC 2 level security protocol. What that means is that we're following and observing the standards of insurance providers, healthcare practitioners, banks. It makes it really important that um, we are ensuring that there's no security concerns or risks on the part of individuals who are still just anonymously sharing their own data. So um, I can share this at some point with, I guess, with the, the, the group that's hosting. And if anyone wants access to it, can get, um, can also see these types of uh, information on our website that's gonna exist at perseus.id. And then the last thing I wanna do really quickly is show just very simply our, our platform itself. And the app exists, we were approved on um, Apple and Google to do some private betas. The big island of Hawaii um, passed a resolution to support our platform. Maui passed a resolution supporting the platform. Um, Kauai County is doing some, uh, some private beta testing with us. And then we're working with Kamehameha Schools, um, several federally qualified health centers. The, like, as, as mentioned, the testing groups, Maui has Minute Medical. They cover about 70% of the tests. Um, and then all the, the folks beyond that are um, like the Project Health, uh, Project Vision Hawaii and Premier Medical Group as mentioned. So we're basically integrating the test results and the test providers into the platform for automated notification. So here's the app. People just quickly can log in. It's a very simple login. It's passwordless. It makes it faster and more secure. You do a quick syndromic surveillance, um, which is basically self-symptom reporting. I'm gonna just say that I have a fever, submit. Um, that's gonna give me an automated response from, that's a CDC clinician level. There's also a bunch of risk factors that are epidemiologically valid and of concern. So if people are first responders, essential workers, over 65, whatever it may be, comorbidities or any other concerns, they can answer those, those pieces of data. Um, the, the app actually immediately asks every 24 hours uh, if you want to update your data. It takes a couple of seconds. I'm going to say that I no longer have a fever. I'm going to pretend it was 24 hours. I immediately submit that I have chest pain. And then the, the correlate five-tier response comes forth. That's one of the highest level concerns relative to COVID. And the appropriate response is, is provided. And again, these are clinician-level CDC responses that we're just pulling directly from the CDC. Um, the other thing that's important to note is that we actually we have a QR code associated to each individual. So this QR code is tied to your 
actual test results. Because we connect directly with the, the labs, clinics, and some of the manufacturers of devices, that goes straight into it. And it's important that people cannot self-diagnose um, or self-administer or, or self-suggest what the results are, their tests are. So we made sure that it's only FDA EUA approved tests and it's only clinician level authorized approval. So what I can show here is that if I'm a, if I'm a gatekeeper, somebody I can scan a QR code, it immediately shows that I'm positive because that's how I registered it at, for earlier um, demoing. And it shows the, the time at which I was tested positive. I therefore have no access. I ought to be in quarantine. We have a quarantine management component where there's a user that actually has a button that couldn't get notified for as an authority that there may be a person in breach. Um, as a contact, um, as a test provider, of a, as a lab tech, I also have the capacity to immediately update my test results. So I can go ahead and say, okay, you know, this is a different person, presumably. Um, I update the results and now I'm clear. So anytime that I'm a gatekeeper, so if I'm scanning people's QR code before they get onto airplane, before they go into a hotel, into a school, into a bank, into a restaurant, whatever it may be, we can have a safe protocol that's actually authenticated by healthcare practitioners and there's no way of cheating that system. So it's really important to ensure that that chain of assurances are there because then employers can be confident that all their employees that are coming are safe. They've gone through the appropriate protocol. They've satisfied the criteria. Um, anybody who's a customer that may want to go into these establishments, they can also feel confident and safe. If they, however, are, um, if it's, for example, I can update these results again, I can show that it's inconclusive or that it's unknown because a person hasn't taken a test yet. What happens then is I immediately can see that there's no access because that's a potential concern as well to a particular location. So if it's unknown, maybe I'm a risk. I could be um, asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic or the test was inconclusive or I actually crossed paths with somebody who actually has COVID. So I wanna make sure that that's all clear. I'm gonna update it one last time and then I'm gonna wrap up. Um, so I'm gonna say again that I'm a positive test. This now, as mentioned, I, this is the only way that I actually have access to seeing, sharing my location log. Now, in order to share that, this can be connected to the Department of Health, any other technology provider that comes about that has an app, we can integrate with them. It's not a matter of having one or more apps. All of them can be tied together. All of the data then can be shared. It's important to get the data within 24 hours for everybody in order for us to actually slow this curve as well. So having the digital technologies to support the Department of Health and others um, is really critical. So what we're doing then is we allow for the user themselves, they're the ones who are sharing the anonymous data. They can either share all of it anonymously or they can share some of it. If they share some of it, then that actually allows them to potentially redact certain data points that might be private. So if I'm driving by myself, it's actually irrelevant data. If I travel by car or, or car, by bus or carpool, that's important to share with those that I'm traveling with. So I wanna go ahead and say that I'm traveling by bus because I want them to be notified. This is me on my farm with my data. If I, for whatever reason, I wanna remove any additional data I can before sharing it. So the, the removal of that, we have a database that has every single geolocation of every publicly accessible space in the state. We can remove that data. That data then, if we do the reverse of it, that's the private data. It makes it really, really quick. So people's locations are secure. They don't have to worry about it. Here's a more rigorous level that happens to be my home address. I say, I don't wanna share that because that's personal. I don't wanna share my family member's address or my 
my um, uh, friend's address. Once I'm confident with the, the data, I can go ahead and I publish it. And now I can see on a map, there's the locations of the various um, uh, points. So I just showed that within the last three hours, there's a key. That's the times at which the aerosol and, and the contagion in the air actually is a concern. So that allows for uh, people to know on a website, even if you don't download the app or have a smartphone, you can actually see on a website anonymous data. That allows this data then to be seen to avoid particular locations that are of concern. So once the three hours is passed, those red dots convert to yellow. Contact surfaces are still contagion points for 72 hours. So that remains yellow for the next 72 hours. After that, it gets deleted. And then the final thing to mention is that the of the remaining 24 days of data that are concerns from an exposure history vantage point, this data now that's been posted anonymously and voluntarily is now able to be matched against other users' data that's being tracked. So they then they're not sharing their own data. They're just getting notifications if there's matches from a date, um, time period, uh, and then the duration of the exposure as well as the um, location. So there'd be a list of that information there, and then they would immediately be notified that there has been an exposure that's of concern. Please go get um, tested. We have the various sites that they can go and look at all the different locations that exist in order for them to get tested. They can schedule those tests. As soon as those tests are scheduled, they hopefully stay in self-isolation until the results of those tests come in, and then they move from there. So. Um, that's basically the nature of the, the whole platform. We do also, we're working with Institute of Human Services and we're starting to speak with um, partners in care. So the houseless folks also have access to these things. If there's not in, um, phone, cell phone access, we're trying to actually either purchase that for them and or use uh, devices as Dr. Da uh, Stuart Davis had been mentioning. There's all different kinds of devices that exist from either um, pendants to bracelets, anklets, to key fobs um, or the like. So that, uh, even smart cards, and those are QR codes with Bluetooth and or GPS. So tons of solutions exist. We built this to be scalable, accessible to anybody, open uh, architecture and framework so anybody can plug in and, um, and, and preferably we can all work together to uh, kind of help ease the concerns of of saving lives and or livelihoods. If all the solutions and all the partners are able to work together, I think we can accommodate both at the same time. So um, that's it on my end. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, th thanks, Kevin. Um, over to you, Kate, for our next uh, topic. Awesome. So I know today we talk uh, a lot about the amazing technologies that can help us battle COVID-19, right? But in order for innovative technologies to actually work, they need to be paired with innovative protocols and policies. So I kind of wanted to ask Dr. Davis, um, since your company, the Oz, worked with NFL, but also with smaller professional sports team to help them resume their events safely. Do you have any lessons learned from us um, to, that Hawaii can actually implement? So just speaking of, for those that aren't familiar with what the NFL has done, but obviously the NFL has done an excellent job of what they've you know, with what they've done and they've kept, you know, they've kept COVID down and things like that. However, what everybody does need to know is they have done an absolute incredibly high amount of testing and they've spent an incredible amount of money to do this. And obviously the NFL has a limitless budget and they did a tier players were getting and personnel were getting tested every day. Tier two also getting tested every day. People are coming in close contact with players and essential personnel. 
just daily testing every single day. And that's not, you know, it worked great and it has worked great and it is going to keep us watching football on Sundays and Monday nights and things of that nature. However, that's not really sustainable in, in let's say the, the rest of the world where they don't have those types of sort of limitless budgets. So I think one example that's, that's pretty interesting is uh, my company worked directly with the A7FL, which is a, a smaller seven on seven uh, professional football league. And with some technology and with a lower number of tests and with, um, you know, with some um, doing that on a, on a less periodic basis than what the NFL did, they have been able to achieve getting players and games, you know, back on the field. And they've done it safely, um, you know, in that environment. And basically what it involved was testing players a few days out and then testing players as it got closer, not doing everyday testing and then tracking all of this through, you know, a digital platform that, that was developed. And then and allowing sort of a, a green is good and red is bad type of a system of, you know, who was going to be allowed. They obviously did limit the number of fans and, and tried to keep ancillary personnel out and keep numbers down. But they did prove that on a much lower budget, it could be done with the help of some technology. And just to mention a few other, you know, in the pro sports realm as well, a few other uh, sports have been able to accomplish things not going to the daily testing that the NFL did. Uh, you know, Ultimate Fighting came back, probably the first professional sport to come back, and they were able to do testing on a periodic basis and keep everybody safe. And yes, they had a couple of positives here and there, and they were able to deal with that. And they had protocols to deal with that, just like the NFL does. Um, PGA Tour and now the LPGA Tour, they've come back as well. Uh, PGA Tour has been back for obviously a long time already now hosting events and, you know, doing testing every few days. And, and they've shown that on, you know, if you keep the number of people down, test every few days. Um, you are able to, you know, to do this on a, on a much, uh, you know, on a much uh, smaller budget than what the NFL achieved. But there's no question that testing has been key for all of these groups. And then as testing beyond PCR becomes a lot more available and cheaper, let's say rapid antigen testing, I think you have the ability to use that to bring fans back and to bring other people back because you could do rapid on-site testing. And all of that technology that I, you know, that, that uh, you know, Dr. Uh, uh, Buen Consejo alum uh, spoke about, I think it's going to continue to help us with that as well as the saliva testing and things like that. Um, you know, the, the Veritor testing from BD and the Quidel testing and the, um, the Abbott testing all allows for rapid, you know, results, antigen live virus, you have the, the saliva tests that are coming out. And then also there's, as many probably know, there's also breathalyzer type tests that are coming out that also work very quickly. Um, so I think those, these are all modalities that are going to help. And I think that other um, economies that rely heavily on tourism, like why, um, are also looking at this as well. I mean, that's how they bring conferences and trade shows back. You've got to imagine that everybody is looking at this on a wider scale uh, because, you know, the, the economy of Las Vegas is heavily dependent on these large trade shows. It's not just about getting gambling back and whatnot. So I think it's all important to look at how these resorts and are, you know, and, and these conference centers are planning to do stuff like that and other cities and other, you know, other municipalities are evaluating that. And Orlando in Florida has done a lot of the same, how they get people back to the parks and how they stay open and how they stay safe. And it's testing, it's social distancing, it's mask wearing, it's a combination of everything. And I think, you know, albeit not perfect, I think the Disney parks in Florida and Orlando have done a, a relatively great job of doing it. Uh, and I think people feel safe going there. Um, so in the spirit of time, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll conclude. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing the case studies as well as examples, um, how we can actually prevent and manage the spread. And as you mentioned, it's not necessarily just about one technology or one solution, right? It's a combination of things that will eventually will keep us safe.
Okay, now we have um, Admiral Tripoli, um, who up until last week was helping to keep the 380,000 men and women in uniform in the Asia Pacific safe from COVID-19. Um, and he would like to talk about uh, the four keys of mission assurance. Uh, can you hear me okay, John? Yes, sir. Okay, well, first of all, a lot of what I was gonna say has already been said by these brilliant people. Um, you know, our four T's were the, uh, as you know, um, evaluating the threat, which I talked about, uh, then balancing our ability to test, to trace and track and to treat. Uh, and part of that also had to do with identifying people who were vulnerable to se severe infection and making sure that they were, um, that they were appropriately managed. Um, so uh, I won't repeat a lot of that. There is one thing I will say that um, that Dr. Buen Consejo Lump pointed out uh, to a number of us, and we've we've looked at this in the military, and that is the Pareto effect. And um, uh, Lieutenant Governor Green um, uh, alluded to this some as well. And I, I'll just put that into the context of my uh, comments here. Um, a very small number of people we found were uh, the vectors for a very large number of infections. So, um, so there are characteristics that we're still um, trying to discern as to, um, uh, as to how to manage that situation. In other words, um, not all people who are infected are equally infectious. And um, I, I wanna also um, voice my support for um, Mr. Uh, Dr. Sullivan's um, work in the um, in the area of, of getting the rapid tests uh, to uh, come to fruition. Um, in the interest of time, I'll just uh, talk. I'll just mention one other thing that we learned, and this was the value of masks. And um, there were there was a tale of two cruises, the Diamond Princess, which a lot of people have heard about, where. Um, there were no masks available or very few masks available. And as you know, it was a major outbreak and a lot of people got sick. And then there was an Argentine cruise ship in which there was an outbreak. Uh, and um, and the, the level of people who were asymptomatic was much higher. And um, in that outbreak, they actually had surgical masks for the passengers and N95 masks for the crew. And uh, we what we found is... Um, through our experience with some of the outbreaks on military uh, vessels is that masks matter not only to protect, um, uh, not only to contain the, the virus uh, when someone has it, but also masks do, may do more than protect others during COVID-19 through reducing the inoculum of the SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and there was a uh, interesting um, study that was done using hamsters who are susceptible to, um, there's a certain type of hamsters who are susceptible to this virus. They, this was a study that was done in, uh, published in the Cl Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease. And what they did was they took infected hamsters. So on this side, we have infected hamsters, and then they exposed uninfected hamsters under several different conditions. So with no mask at all, two thirds of the uninfected hamsters uh, got the infection. But with the mask uh, on the infected hamster, um, only one in six of the uninfected hamsters got the infection. But if you turn the mask around and take the, uh, put the uh, mask on the uninfected hamster, it still cut it down to one in three. Um, and um, I think that 
be really honest with you, that was kind of funny to put it that way. They didn't really put masks on the hamsters. They put in a, a partition between cages to actually make this work. But, but, the, but the principle was that, um, that masks confer some sort of um, uh, level of protection. But not only that, they found that in the hamsters that were infected who wore the masks, they actually got a lower dose. And we've known this to be true in other infections. And when you get a lower dose, you may actually be able to, uh, to uh, push um, from a symptomatic and severe case down to a uh, less symptomatic or even asymptomatic infection. And we saw this uh, in, uh, in the early clusters that we saw where uh, we had most of the, um, in the military, we had where we had an outbreak, we had most of the people who really got sick at the very beginning of the outbreak. And once um, they were able to socially distance, wear masks and implement these measures, we were actually able to cut that down significantly. And I think that tells us something about the balance between testing and the other modalities that we have available. There was an article as well about the efficacy of various masks. And they, they took 15 different conditions, 14 masks and no masks. And they found that the type of mask really matters. And what you can see here is that the fitted N95 surgical mask has zero droplet count in their simulation. And then they have the various kinds of masks um, arrayed here all the way up to no mask at all, which is here in the green. Um, so if you see the surgical mask, it, it performed um, almost as good as the fitted N95 masks. Um, the cotton mask, which a lot of people use, performed very well. This graph over on the right side shows you um, the actual droplet rate on this side. And then um, I'll get back to the total droplet count in a minute. If you look at the bandana over here, the red, you'll see that um, there was a, a lot more of, uh, of uh, particles that get through that and the total droplet count was pretty high. The green graph here is no mask at all. So you can see how that, that goes up in their simulation. Um, but interestingly enough, if you look at the fleece mask, it actually increased the droplet rate because of the way that it, um, that it was, um, uh, uh, that it uh, actually created more particles um, because of the uh, seepage of the, of the uh, transmission through the fabric. So I just wanted to say that um, in our military experience, we did uh, find this uh, also to be the case. Finally, um, I mentioned this before, clusters. Um, there's, there's a, and this is an article that was in a magazine, but there's, there's, um, there's this issue of, um, of um, a, as we call super spreaders, small amount of, um, of um, a, a small number of people creating um, a large uh, exposure. And so um, uh, clearly um, there are ways of dealing with that, which I will uh, leave to your imagination because a lot of you have already talked about it. Um, the, uh, the role of asymptomatic spread in a relatively young and healthy population was um, something that we uh, had to deal with and um, had to figure that out as well. And a lot of uh, what's already been uh, discussed um, uh, uh, feeds into that. I think the technologies, for example, that um, Mr. Vaccarello spoke about with regard to being able to contact trace, we've seen that um, 
play out in other countries that are aggressively uh, doing that. And uh, we certainly learned a lot from dealing with um, countries like Korea and Japan and how they have managed uh, uh, their um, burden of infection. So in summary, um, a lot of what we learned in the military uh, uh, underscores what's already been said here. I think there's um, tremendous value to masks, which needs to be appropriately communicated and is somehow um, uh, you know, um, still an area where we can improve. I think that there's a, a um, possibility that we may be able to define characteristics of likely spread and um, try to prevent um, super spreader events and clusters. Um, I think it's important to emphasize, as I said at the beginning, that not one size fits all and that we have to be able to develop strategies that help us to detect the threat and to carry those forward because there's, a, as, as mentioned before, it's not evenly spread out between, um, between uh, people who have the infection, nor is it evenly spread out as the people who get severe infection. And uh, finally, and perhaps most importantly, um, I do believe that um, prior to the widespread use of the vaccine, the rapid frequent testing that has been discussed is um, extremely important for us to get to as soon as uh, we possibly can. And uh, we don't need PCR level of detection to be able to do that. I'll stop there and yield the, uh, the, the floor to others. Thank you. Thank you, Admiral, uh, for, for the information. Uh, but then also thank you for your service and congratulations on your retirement um, last week. Um, so, so in the interest of time, I know we're um, a little bit over time and we're gonna wrap this up soon. Uh, we'd like to ask um, all the panelists and maybe if they can respond in 20 seconds each. Um, at the beginning of this webinar, we said our goal was to highlight some of the technologies, innovation, and policy innovation that was occurring. And we wanna ask you out of everything that you've heard, what is your top takeaway for what Hawaii could implement to strengthen our reopening plan. And so with that, um, let, let's go to uh, Dr. Wayne Kunsil-Lum. Hi, everyone. Thanks again. Yeah, I think, um, again, it really needs to be a multifactorial approach. And if we can get uh, testing that uh, we can do um, more rapidly, that's, that's really going to be key. But again, People also have to wear the mask, uh, including on the plane. I know there were some questions in the chat about that. Um, and so we're all gonna have to really pay attention to the mask and the physical distancing um, as well, um, and not just rely on the testing. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Patrick Sullivan. Okay, yeah, I missed part of your earlier comment on uh, summarizing, but I think there's, there's issues of behavior, there's issues of technology, and then you've got the economy trying to get people back to work. So um, technology is there, but we need to have the right sort of behavior and get used to the idea we're gonna be living with the virus for a while because the vaccine isn't coming as quickly as uh, people would like. And I think that rapid testing, the benefit of it is to identify something before it becomes a big problem and you can eliminate a class of infectiousness that occurs um, that is absolutely preventable. And I think uh, the kinds of technology that are coming are gonna be very affordable. 
and I think easy to use. So I think there's a solution there, but we all need to be working together. Uh, the collaboration with Queens and the university has been excellent. And I think if uh, we dial in uh, everybody in the state, I think we've got the solution for our future in our hand. And the last comment is uh, just food for thought that we've collaborated with uh, uh, some of the slides I showed, the guys in Boulder, this guy, Mike Mina at Harvard, and there's this guy at, at Stanford that's reached out on putting together a demonstration of how Hawaii can create a safe environment as a bubble, as a national demonstration. So there's a lot of aloha outside of the state to support demonstrating this, which would be, would be a great demonstration for the entire country. And it's something we could do. So it's just food for thought to kind of show what we can do to be an example of how to get control of this issue for the entire country. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Dr. Stuart Davis. So I, I, I think that I've heard a lot of good stuff and I think that uh, following some of the protocols that uh, people have already been using to travel internationally to other countries, which is what it sounds like, you know, Hawaii is trying to, to follow and how to get all to happen. You know, obviously there is there is some calculated risk there, but I think, you know, some small bit of risk is acceptable. And I think we have seen, obviously here in Florida, I've watched a lot of this because we have a lot of international travel that happens to Central South America and Latin America. And I think they've done a great job. People have been successfully traveling to the Bahamas and back. People have been successfully traveling to the northern parts of South America, like Colombia and back. And, you know, with the testing protocol, similar to what the, the governor spoke about, and it, it has worked out. So I think it sounds like you're, you know, Hawaii is on a great track to, to, to get reopened with a safe plan with, you know, with some small amount of calculated risk. Thanks for that. Uh, Mr. Kevin Beccarello. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think that, um, that everybody on the panel and everybody um, is really, really striving towards accomplishing what, what all of us need is, is a safe reopening. That's very clear. And I, I, more than anything, um, kind of clock's ticking. So how do we really rally together and put best foot forward for the collective benefit of the community and the economy and, and everything? I think what we've heard today from the various panelists, and I, I feel really privileged to be on it with everyone, um, it's, it's encouraging to hear the solution sets that exist. The, and I'd like to um, figure out ways to continue the dialogues and I think as we stitch them all together, that we can actually do something along those lines. As um, Dr. Sullivan was mentioning, having a prototypical space, kind of this tiny bubble in the middle of the Pacific would be a beautiful story for many reasons. And uh, particularly having the host culture and, and our residents here being amongst those safe folks that are receiving the benefits of all of our collective efforts working collaboratively together to make it happen. So thank you much. Thank you, um, Admiral Tripoli. I think right now, uh, while we uh, ramp up the technology that we've talked about, the one thing we can do is to have community leaders and influencers set a positive example about mask wearing and make it fun, make it interesting, and um, do uh, those things that bring us together as an ohana. Uh, you know, in the military, we work as a team. We're very proud of that. And getting everybody uh, on board to be part of that team is part of what makes the military effective. 
Um, I'm not saying that we should all be members of the military. What I'm trying to get at is that as we see ourselves as members of the same community with a positive example, instead of pointing out negatives, uh, we should be constantly striving for a positive message about those things that we can do to work together. So that's, uh, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Um, and finally, uh, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. Well, thank you. Thank you for welcoming me. And uh, for the perspective, I've been lucky enough to, to chat with a lot of our experts on a couple occasions in the last few weeks. So I'd heard these some of these proposals before. I think that uh, if I were gonna say one thing, I would say that the world needs to reopen and it has to reopen safely. The isolation, having been an individual who went through COVID and the isolation of being a leader of a state that is very isolated right now and watching its people suffer in their own isolation necessitates that we reopen. I think that we are quickly going to move to a place where a global post-traumatic stress disorder does exist. And I'm, I mean that as a physician. So uh, utilizing technologies like we heard from Patrick, Kevin, very important to be able to reopen in a big and safe way. And so I'm looking forward to the future. It can't come soon enough. Obviously a vaccination, which we didn't dive into today will also be helpful, but uh, the world does need to reopen and do it safely. And so I'm excited to, to just be a small part of these larger uh, thoughts that were presented today. Thank you so much on, on behalf of Kate and I and the Scheidler Alumni Association, the Timmy um, uh, Alumni Association as well. We just like to extend uh, deep gratitude uh, for, for all of our panelists taking your time, all the attendees uh, that took time out uh, to listen to this talk. Um, there's a lot of information covered and uh, th this will be made available online as well. Um, I'd like to turn it over to Toby for um, final closing remarks and an advertisement for our next panel next week. Uh, thank you so much, John. And thank you to our panelists for your guidance and providing us hope as we move forward in this time together. If you'd like to rewatch any part of this webinar, a recording will be posted at braingainhigh.com. That's braingainhigh.com, with also shareable links to our YouTube and podcast for this. Our next webinar, Impacts and Forecasts of the Airline Industry, is next week, Tuesday at 11.30 a.m. Speakers include executives from the Department of Transportation Airport Division, Hawaiian Airlines, Alaska Airlines, United Airlines, and all Nippon Airways from Japan. You'll receive an email with the registration information. Thank you to all those in attendance. Thank you to our wonderful speakers. We appreciate everything everyone is doing to reopen our economy safely. See you next week.